Here we are, my friends, another episode of the Shema podcast. You know, we have discussed a lot about the Hebrew language and how it is the building block of everything we see around us. It says in the beginning of the Torah that Hashem created and He sustains this world through speech, through the vibrational frequencies of the Hebrew language. But there's something deeper here, too, I wanted to explore with you, and that is that these shapes of the Hebrew letters have profound meaning as well. My friends, I'm excited to let you know that we have the great Rabbi Cohen doing this episode with me from Israel, and he is going to share with us the meaning of the Hebrew letters. Welcome to the Shema Podcast, the podcast for the perplexed, where Torah insights intertwine through personal stories as well as interviews with leading Torah scholars demonstrate the empowering qualities of Torah and mitzvot. For more great Torah learning through Torch, the Torah Outreach Center of Houston, go to torchweb.org. Now to the show. Rabbi Cohen, thank you so much for coming on the Shema Podcast. Me and the guest appreciate you being here once again. Great to be here as always, Dan. So... Let's begin with, for one, I want to find out where you are with the book. The one you mentioned to us, Creating Angels, that we spoke about the last time I had you on the Schmall Podcast. Yeah, so God willing, it's in its second editing, where they're working through some of the writing and other touchings up, and God willing, in a few months, it should be ready to print. Just in case someone was not listening to that last episode we did, tell the audience about what this book is about. The book is basically based on many passages that we have through in the Holy Torah, whether it's the written law, the oral law, that basically expresses the idea of our powerful creativity within us. And one of the main passages is that states that basically every thought that we think there's an angel that's created, which only brings us to fruition of whether good or bad, the nature of that thought. So that's already one just powerful exercise if a person were to be aware of his thoughts, that it's creating an energy that is going to propel him to a certain destiny. So that's just one of them, and I bring many other sources, either from the Kabbalistic sources, Hasidic books, and Hasidic rebbe's, and things like that. One of the things I got when I read the original draft of it many years ago, and I was so blown away by it, is that You know, as we're trying to learn Torah, be involved in business, all these things we're we're involved in in this world, it all starts with the thoughts. And the thoughts are the most profound aspect. And the words and the actions are all secondary to that. Is that correct? Yeah, but actually before the thought, there's a will. Okay. And that's really something that's like almost untouchable by all of us. Because we really know where does the will come from? Will for holy things, will for good things, I'd say. And uh, and then there's also negative influences as well. But my book mostly focuses on the way that we can go ahead and utilize that creative essence within all of us, that what we call the image and likeness of God, which basically teaches us, informs us about our tremendous creative potential. So we're, we're interested in changing the world when we change our thoughts. Yes, the first thing that we can understand is the thought from the will. Beautiful. And then, of course, then we can go ahead and go from there. So when I, when I read that book, and I can't wait to read the final copy again and again and again, but I remember when I was reading, I was like, if 
everyone at Clay SRL read and was cognizant of this, it would, it would change everything. And it was so profound that what I wanted to offer to you, dear listeners, is that the first, we'll say, 30 people to respond and send me an email at president at torchweb.org and just put in the subject, I want the book. And I will buy the, the copy of the book and I will have Rabbi Cohen autograph it. Now, he did just share something with me he taught earlier today. You want to share that with the audience real quick? And I'll tell them what the, what the additional catch is based off what you just told me. Yes, I was just giving a class in the Zohar that spoke about that when it comes to a mitzvah, something holy, that a person should actually use his money to pay for. In other words, when things are, are for free, then that really is a gateway or an opening for what we call the other side or the negative forces or negative influences to come and actually hijack that holy act. So therefore, it's, it's advised, not, it's not just advised, but like you have to make sure you do this to actually spend your money <laughs> to go ahead and buy things of holiness. And there it was talking about, let's say, like a mezuzah for your house, tefillin, or any other item of a mitzvah, an esrog or a lulav, and also a book, a holy book for sure. Okay. So I did clear this audience with Rabbi Cohen. I said, well, well, hold on a second. I want to buy the book for the first 30 people who send me an email requesting it and have it signed by you. But there was something, an effort I want you put into this, this equation because what I want in the end is this book in every Jew's hands. So what I'm asking those that I'm buying the book for, that they, they will turn around and share it with their friends and tell them about it and get them to buy it and be basically the, the marketing spokespeople for this book so we can spread it to every Jew around the globe. So I think if with that effort, basically them doing that— Sounds like a pay-it-forward, pay-it-forward kind of deal. Exactly. So that would avoid the Sitra Akra, right? Yes. Okay, beautiful. All right, let's get into this topic. And I thought maybe we would start with this— something I wanted to explore. Someone brought to my attention not too long ago about these different scripts. And it was some debate on which one is the original one. What's in our, how our Torah is written now. What was on the Ten Commandments? Can you explain to us about these different scripts and and which is the original? Yes, there was an ancient Ivrit script that we have, actually. You can even actually, like, like, Google it, and you can see the images of it. They are kind of scribbles in a certain sense. So there's actually a three-way argument that brings from the Talmud in Tractate Sanhedrin, page 21b and 22a, that actually go into a three-way argument about what were the letters and the origin of the letters and the form that we have now. Now, the name of the form that we have now is called Ashurit script. That's the name of the form of the letters that we have, the Aleph, the Bays, and the Gimel. But actually, there was another script called an Ivri script, or Ivrit and the question is, what's the origin of that? What's the history of that? And what is the asherite that we have in front of us? So there's, like I said, there's three-way argument. There's Mar, there's Marzutra. Marzutra wanted to say that originally, and even on the tablets, that it was written in this ancient script that we got. In other words, different forms of different letters. It might have been Hebrew, the same sounds, okay? okay. But it was a different script, different letters. It has, it's, it has a you. There's there's questions that are raised among it. And the interesting thing was historically, how did a Shurit script or the script that we have in terms of the form of the letters that we have today come to be, according to Marzutra, which was basically there was a huge feast in the time of Daniel, 
when I believe it was Belshazzar who brought out the basic vessels of the, that was in the Holy Temple in Jerusalem. Okay. And they were using the Holy Temples for their mundane party. Even though it was a fancy party, it was not holy. And all of a sudden, these people noticed a disconnected hand that was writing on the wall. And nobody could interpret the writing on the wall. Nobody, could, nobody knew what it was. Nobody knew what it, the language, until Daniel came. And Daniel goes, oh, yeah, this means weighed, weighed, divine in measure, and uh, your time, and this is it. It's over for you. I don't know the exact words. But basically, he was, he was able to decipher that. And because the writing, that writing on the wall that was written by the angel was called Ashurit script that Daniel was familiar with. Okay. Okay? How is he familiar? I don't know. That's according to Marzutra. That's according to one view. But since then, in that time, the Jewish people adopted that script and utilized that and wrote it in all the mezuzahs and, and Torah scrolls. That's what we have today. Yes, the script that we have today, but that's one opinion. And the reason why it was called a shurit there was because it came from the predominantly the community, the Jewish community of Ashur knew that script. Okay. I mean, they adopted it. They took it on. So that's why just because of the, it's because in relationship to the locale of the place, that's why it has that name of Ashuri. That's one view. Then there's the second view, which is Rebbe. And Rebbe wanted to say, no, that's not true at all. What happened was originally in the tablets that Moses received in the Torah scroll that we had was originally written in Ashurit script. Yes, it was the ancient language that was always there. But the, the issue was we, since we sinned, we forgot about it and it became fragmented. And then they were using the letters that most people can go ahead and Google the old Hebrew letters or Ivri letters to see that it was these basically scribbly little squirks of lines, fragmented. Okay. And then when the people did shuv, of course, so then it brought it came back, and that's when it became adopted because it it reinstituted actually by Ezra. Ezra was basically the main instigator of bringing this form of the letters back into predominant practice. So Ezra was the one to bring the exiles back from Babylon at at the beginning of the second temple. Okay, so that second argument was that. I assume it had to be the the Ten Commandments, right, on the tablets. However, forty years after that event, Moshe wrote the 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 written Torah. Scroll. He was involved in writing the Torah scroll as the events were taking place. Okay, so okay. then, which is a whole other bizarro conversation. Okay, but which I, I would assume we have time to have those letters matched up. The script matched up. Same. It was all that script, according to Rebbe. Okay. According to Rebbe, it was the same script, and they lost it the the tradition for it, so they were doing it in the. Ivory script. And then when it came time to come back, Ezra reinst- reinstated the, the script that we have now called Ashurit. And the reason why it's Ashur or Ashurit is a different understanding is because it's rich. Okay? Okay, that was the reason why it gave here. That's what Ashurit would mean according to him. Ashurit can be translated to mean beautiful. That's according to the Maharal of okay. Prague, Rabbi Yehuda Lowe who holds like Rebbe, because he says the tablets in the original Torah scroll were written in Ashurit script. But then there's the, the third view that it brings is, is that it was always that way. In other words, they never lost it. They always had it, and they never lost it. Okay, And then he had other questions to answer, because then what was Ezra reinstating? Because there was a verse that he instated the new writ. And he has his proofs for that. So one view says we... It was new from the time of Daniel. One view says it, we had the Ashurit script, lost it, and then got it back. And one view says we never lost it. 
Okay. Okay. So, and most of the people, let's say like Rabbi Yehuda Leo of Prague that we said, he went and said he went ahead and held like Rebbe that it's the same script that it was, and also we have the uh, the Radbaz also as well that go ahead and affirm that that was the written the, the script that was written on the tablets. Okay, because I would assume the one thing I understood is that with the 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 written Torah, it was written in the script that the reason. Moshe gave a copy to everyone is to make sure that any future copies were copied identical to that one. So I can't imagine the script in the written Torah ever changing. Correct. And there's also another proof that it was in the Ashurit script that it brings down from uh, Tractate Megillah that, you know, the letters were on one side or the other. It would go from the letter, all of the Hebrew letters that were written were actually like like carved all the way through on the other all the way to the other side of the tablet, right? It wasn't just written like an inch thick. Right, you're talking about the tablet. Yes, the psalmic. And of course, if you turn it around, you'd be reading it. You wouldn't be reading it backwards. But the idea that it wanted to say that was that the letter psalmic and mem sofit stayed because the stone would not be there technically. Because it's a complete circle, mem sofit, the final mem, and the letter psalmic, which are like a circle. Right. A closed circle. Where's that stone that's in the middle? So it, it, it of course said that it miraculously was suspended in air in the tablets, which indicates that a samich is that letter. Okay, the samich is the samich, not according to the old Hebrew script, because you look at the samich of the old Hebrew script, it's definitely not that a, a circle. So basically, the, the the when we talk about the shape of the Hebrew letters. The, the original shapes of those letters, it is what we are familiar with today. Yes, and they all have tremendously mystical connotations, every single letter, as is taught by the mystics, because don't forget, like what you said in the beginning, these are 22 letters, and we call them, actually, the Zohar calls them stones. The, one of the oldest books called the Sefer Yitzhira calls them stones, and because they are the primordial building blocks of creation— they are energies. The letters are not like just any other language. They have a vibration and they have a godliness. Actually, the Baal Shem Tov brings this down, that just like the Ark of Noah had three stories, and it gets into some really unbelievable practices in terms of meditation, that he, when, when it says by Noah that he has to make a window for the Ark, and the Hebrew words is, Sohar ta'aselateva, which means make a shining for the ark. That's how it would literally translate. So what does it mean by shining for the ark? So the commentators say it's a window or it's an illuminating stone. But of course, to go to the next level, as we always have to do because the Torah is eternal, is that really he's saying something really dynamic as the same word for ark is the same word in Hebrew for word, teva. So when it says make a shining for the ark, which could imply just simple as a window. It's also meaning another thing, make the word to shine. And he goes on the Baal Shem Tov to explain that just like the ark has three stories, it had a bottom floor, it had a medium floor for the animals, and it had a top floor for the people. But so too, every letter has three elements to it. It has a world element, it has the soul element, and it has the godly element. And basically, he has a tremendous meditative practice of combining the letters every time you say a letter with its vibration that actually your soul joins with this letter and joins to godliness and you create a unification with every single word that you make 
and you make the word to shine, and the word actually becomes like your Ark of Noah, your Ark of Noah that you go into, you know, so to speak, with your mind, and then you are protected from all the influences of the outside world. But I just want to give you a little tidbit of like, the letters are not ordinary letters. They're very mystical, and they're used in meditation. Visual sight of the letters. And when you're talking about three levels, is there, is there something to the fact that they have a sound, there's a visual shape, and there's a numerical value? Right. Big time. As a matter of fact, I have a whole book on it that was written by Rabbi Yitzchak Ginsberg called The Hebrew Letters, Channels of Creative Consciousness. And it's a whole thick book that goes letter by letter that in terms of what are the world aspect of the letter, what's the soul aspect of the letter, and what's the godliness aspect of the letter, that you really have to take the letter and infuse it with godliness. The sound and the, the, the numerical value and the sound and the sight of the letters all combine like into one. But just to go a little bit before that, to get into the idea, um, and something that was taught to me a long time ago, that not that you can make so much use of it, but at least it gives us a window to understand that even to pronounce these letters, there's powerful influence about it in the world, in our lives and in our environment. And the idea was taught to me that, you know, in the beginning when you're finally writing a letter, every letter starts with a yud, always. Because it is just a yud is just a dot on a page. And then, of course, that yud is then expanded. The letter, actually, is always made up of either vavs or yuds. All letters are either a vav or a yud. Like the aleph is basically a yud on top, there's a vav in the middle going slanted, and then there's a yud on the bottom. And it tells a whole story on its own, that aleph. I always sort of saw the, the yud, and maybe it's something I, maybe I picked up talking to you, or hopefully I didn't come up with it on my own, is that the, the yud is like being small is like the initial idea. And the vav is that idea of being brought down. Yes, you could look at it as the seed, indif- undifferentiated dot. It is expansive, but it's not communicable because there's like a no thought zone. Until, let's say, you take that yud and draw it either vertical, or you can draw horizontal, or you can draw diagonal. That vav is going to go, and, and really all of those, I'm going into a really deeper sense. There are two kinds of light in the world. There's two kinds. There's either you get direct light, that's from above to below, that's Hashem bestowing, or there's what's called the returning light, which is basically reflective. Like we have the sun and the moon. The sun is direct light, and the moon is reflective light. So when you see, let's say, just to give you like an idea, of the letter Vav is just a direct line going straight down from the top. Every, except for like, think about six columns of every Sefer Torah, the column always begins with the letter Vav, except for like, think about six places. I'm not sure. But usually every column has to begin with this direct light. And when the light is horizontal, that's, that's a representation of the reflective light, light bouncing back. I need to reflect something. I need to give something back. One is I need to receive and one is I need to give back. And all the letters are a combination of those ideas. And it's all, see, the idea here is it's, these are energies, primordial energy fields used in certain frequencies. They create very powerful things. We know 
God created the world with 10 utterances, 10 statements. And it's not like those statements he uttered them and left like us. He uttered those statements and those statements are giving every single thing its absolute animation right here and now. When he said, let there be a firmament, the letters and the transmutation of those letters and combination of those letters give the firmament its animation. When he said, let there be trees and grasses, those are, we all know, all the Kabbalists know, are made up of letters. The inner workings of these items that we see as a plant or a grass or a fruit, really the inner workings of it and its subatomic quantum cosmic particle, it's letters. The idea here is the energies of letters should not be taken lightly. Now, just to throw it out there since we're on this roll here. So, I mean, just, just, just to get the idea, let's say like the olive. The olive is two yuds and a line in between, a diagonal line in between. So the diagonal line is a combination of like direct light and, and returning light because it's not horizontal and it's not vertical. But the real idea, let's say, exp- expressed in the olive is you have two identical yuds divided by a line. And what does that represent? So you might have heard before. Rabbi Nachman explain, explains this in Torah Vav, that there's you and your potential, and then there's you and your actual. You and your potential represent the dot underneath the line. That's you and your potential. And then actualize is when you're the, the yud above the line. Just to give you a little bit of the story, and each, of course, letter has its energy and, add, and has its life force. There's lots to talk about it. And the olive is silent. How does that fit into this potential actualization of a person? Because olive, actually, the word olive, because then there's the name of the letter itself, which also tells the story. Olive represents alufu shel olam, and that's the ethereal, godlike level of consciousness, because it is silent. Because as is like, as opposed to the bait of Bereshi, the first letter that the Torah begins with is a bait, a bet, and bet is two. And bet represents relationship, because bet is two, the numerical value, and it's house, and it has all of its lines that draw basically a house for you. Gimel, actually the word gimel is legamel, which means giving, because actually it is like moving towards giving something to the next letter, which is dalid. Dalid means poor. So gimel is rushing to give to dalid. After gimel gives to dalid, and if you look at the form of a dalit, it's basically just two lines, one horizontal and one vertical. Barely able to hold itself up. So the gimel gives to it a piece of itself, and then it becomes a hay. And therefore the hay, that extra little piece there, has now contributed to bring hay its expression. And then you'll have the letter vav, which means hook. Each one, zion, means sword. Chet and tet go together in combination, in a combination to be the shekhinah. And and it goes on. Each one of them tells a story. But on the other hand, each one also, as the Baal Shem Tov explains, each letter, like the Aleph that you mentioned, is like the silent letter. It doesn't have really a sound, more like an ah. But when it dresses, but really what happens is that same light, that is ah, is dressing in the letter beneath it, and then it becomes a bet. And then that bet, the same energy is dressing in something else that becomes a gimel. And the same letter, and in other words, the idea is the light gets dressed into another letter and another letter and another letter till it gets to the final letter, which is a tough, 
which is the farthest away from a Kodesh Baruch. It's like the lowest level of tough, 400. Those are the 400 men that chased after Ace, uh, Yaakov when he was coming back to Eretz Israel. That's why he got 400 together. So, I mean, why 400? We got 395. I got to have five more men. <laughs> I got to have 400. You get it? You don't get it, do you? You know, it's like Dr. Evil. You just don't get it. You don't get it. No, you don't get it. So in any case, so you're saying that the idea here is, is you were saying this is the, the, the order letters is the more concealment of Hashem. You said further away from. Yes, him. exactly. You said it better than me. More concealment. But but we don't have to worry about it because it's all in the Torah. The letters are already laid out. And there's three books that you could read, even though you don't understand it that have a significant influence on a person's soul. Three books that I've been taught, that you can just read it, and you don't have to know what it's saying. One is the Torah, and then the other one is Tehillim, and the other one is Zohar. So even if you don't understand it, to read these books, it, ha- it opens up the vibrations of, these, of this. And not, I, I don't want to get low in terms of like vibrations and energy and resonance, but you know there is one halacha, in the Shulchan Orach, that talks about learning. It's Shtaim Mikravecha Targum, meaning twice in the Hebrew, once in the Aramaic. That a person has to read the Parsha of the week twice in the Hebrew, each verse twice in the Hebrew and once in the Aramaic, because the Aramaic is the returning light, actually. Twice coming downward and once reflecting. Don't ask me why, but that's how it's done. And it's a segula, if I can say the word segula, which is a basically it's an action that can perpetuate long life. They say if you do it every week and finish with the community, you get long life. Now, there have been times where I couldn't, didn't make it, and I didn't have such a good time. I'll just be light. And there are times, and usually, you know, God willing, thank God, you read a little bit every day. You just read a little bit every day. Now, it could be too, that could be too overbearing for people. But the idea here is just to understand that the letters themselves, and also people will ask if they're going to go pray. And to pray is, you know, do I do it in English or Hebrew? If I do it in Hebrew, it takes a long time. I'm practicing. I'm breaking my teeth. Rabbi, please help me. So there's different rabbis have different opinions on it. Most of the rabbis are, will definitely be inclined for you to at least start practicing Hebrew some of your prayers. And the rest you can do in English to keep with the, com- with, the, with the community or because, you know, time. But you should at least make a practice every day in the prayers to just try to read something in Hebrew, like the Shema. Start with the first paragraph of Shema, right? Because, like I say, they have tremendous, tremendous ramifications in our souls, in the house that we live in, in the very house. It's a protection for the house as well. When you were saying the third time in Aramaic, was that because that was the the more normal language for a certain period of time? And is it now? You know, that's a good question. I'm glad you brought that up. Okay. The um, Uncleus, he wrote the translation. His name was Uncleus. He was a nephew to the Caesar. I believe he was a nephew to the Caesar who converted. And they bring it down in the same Gomorrah and Megillah when it talked about the letters that were standing, the Samech and the Mem standing in place, that Uncleus didn't come up with an Aramaic translation. He didn't say, I'm going to make an Arab translation 
an Aramaic translation so everybody could understand it because that's what everybody's speaking at the time. Actually, the Torah was also given in Aramaic at Mount Sinai. It brings it down in that, ta- in that passage in the Talmud. In other words, when the people of Mount Sinai, they got it in Aramaic. I don't know if they got it only in Aramaic, Aramaic, or it was Hebrew and Aramaic, okay? But it implied there that it was definitely given to them in Aramaic. That was the language that they understood. And they lost it. They lost the tradition for it. And Uncleus came and brought it back. So it was given at Mount Sinai. According to the Ari, the Aramaic represents that whole reflective light property. Okay. It's an Orhoser kind of reality that we're creating. Right. There's got to be something very holy about Aramaic to, to a level because that's what the Talmud's written in. Absolutely. And the Zohar's written in a different kind of Aramaic, which is more closer to the Uncleus. If you read, in other words, if you get familiar with the Uncleus, it's like Hebrew is hard enough. Don't even go there, Rabbi. But let's say if you were to get the Aramaic of that, you would get more, not the Aramaic of the Talmud. You'd be more inclined, you'd be more easy to understand the Aramaic of the Zohar. It's a different kind of Aramaic. One is Babylonian, one is from Eretz Israel. I think, okay, like I said, I didn't hear it. But just to give you something from a passage here from the from the Sefer Yetzirah. It's a fantastic thing. It says here, it reads like this, and, it, and it's referring to the letters. And if you ever look at Sefer Yetzirah, you could do a reading on it, that everything from chapter 2 to chapter 6 is only talking about the letters and the different types of letters and the different energies of these letters. And so here in this Mishnah, Mishnah 416, in the Kaplan version, it's on page 190. So it says, two stones build two houses. Three stones build six houses. So in other words, it's looking at stones as being the letters. So if you have two letters, you could build two houses. That means you can switch the letters. You could do Aleph and Beit, and that's Av, and then you switch the letters, and it's Beit Aleph, two different words. So you have from two letters, two houses. If you have three stones or three letters, how many combinations of those letters can you build words out of, or just the combinations? Forget about word combinations. So you can build six combinations from three letters, and it goes on four stones, build 24. So it's going exponentially. Five stones, five letters, you build 120 houses. Six stones build 620. And it goes on seven stones, build 5,040. And from here on, go out and calculate that which the mouth cannot speak and the ear cannot hear, because if you take the 22-letter combinations times 21, actually, really, it ends up being almost an, almost an endless combination of letters that you can transmute these letters. Interestingly enough, just to throw it out to you, we say a praise every day. We say, we say that Hashem, He created the stars and He gives them all names. So God gives the names to every single star. And of course, the names are going to be these Hebrew names here. And of course, the combinations of these letters are going to be these stars, the names of these stars. It goes huge and exponentially. And the idea here is that our mouths are very powerful. And of course, the mouths in the Hebrew are very powerful. And then when you use it with the Torah, it becomes extremely powerful. Okay. So one of the things that got me thinking about this whole topic is I read in the Midrash at the giving of the Torah that the Jewish people were seeing sounds. Were they seeing the Hebrew letters? Interestingly enough, I did see recently, they were actually 
using vibrations and trying to form or see what the vibrations, if the vibrations were making a formation of anything. They were using it like in connection with the letters of different languages. Like they were using the letter of A to see if an A would form, okay? Or a B and B would form. And they were using it for different languages. Interestingly enough, when they got to the Hebrew and they used the Aleph, and I guess what happened was, I guess the sand, it was a sand vibration, a right. very fine sand, and it would form into a letter Aleph, okay? Yeah, I've seen, I've seen that video. It's pretty mind-blowing. Right, you did yeah. see that. But our, the power of the speech in Hebrew has powerful effects on all of the molecules that are around us all the time. And that's what blessings are. And, you know, when you give a blessing, you're actually, and, it's, and it goes into the book that I'm writing, of course, because our thoughts are very powerful. Our words also create angels. Our actions also create angels. So the words that we say in Hebrew, they mamish actually have a very strong influence on the molecules that are around us. We don't know. We don't, we're not aware of the influence that we have. We think, okay, only if I talk to somebody or scream at them, maybe I'll have an influence. Maybe, <laughs> right? If I scream at my son or daughter, right? Maybe they'll listen, right? But really, it's way more powerful than that, way more powerful. And they're coming out with stuff like that all the time. So now imagine if you have the building blocks of creation that's forming every single, single thing in existence, and you have the right words for it, how much of an influence, of a greater influence you can have. Here's the practice for everybody now today. It's a huge practice. Okay, It's in the last chapter of my book. They have these things, these fields that we are emitting. They've, they're, they're discovering that people with their thoughts and their feelings are actually emanating energies. And we have a mitzvah before we pray every day. And, the, and before we go in to pray, we walk into the synagogue. We say, I now accept upon myself the positive commandment to love every Jew like myself, every person like myself. It's a positive mitzvah. It's in Leviticus. But you know what happens? Prayers... Sometimes we're just so busy and we're thinking about who knows other things. We don't necessarily focus completely. But I try to stop at that point. And I try to really engender very deep in my heart a sincere love for every single person in creation. And I try to allow the feelings as I say the words, to love your neighbor as yourself. The word love, I try to like picture that a love coming from my heart that reaches to every single person, every single person on the planet, every single creation. It comes from the Ari, the famed 16th century Kabbalist, who said you have to do this every morning before you pray. And then, of course, not just say it. It's the, it's, the create, it's the reality that we are creating. We are actually emanating from our hearts, the deepest places of our psyche, this emanating love to everybody on the planet. So imagine you doing that and feeling that. And it has an effect because you're saying the words in the Torah. It's very powerful. So that's just your little take home that people can do and try it at home. Because it affects the molecules, it affects the atoms, it affects the, the, the reality. And quite frankly, isn't the, the whole illusion of this world that we are trying to see beyond is that there is really no separation Absolutely, because really they are you. Your, your, your neighbor is you. We're all part of one and the same soul. It's all part of the same one 
unified neshama that God created. It's just the bodies seem to be giving this impression that we're separated. But really, reality is definitely not what we think it is. And it, we, it's, it's all red pill stuff. Okay. So we look at every letter as a red pill. <laughs> but it's not just a one-time pill. I'm up, Neo. Welcome to reality. We have to be on a diet of red pills. Okay. okay. So let's let's go back to the the shapes here. Like when someone is looking at like a, a Hebrew word written in Hebrew, and is there something we can learn more about that thing or that animal or something by also understanding? the Hebrew letters. Like I said before, it's our our connection to the letters and our and and through that it seems like the letters are they have three aspects in it, but really we're part of that aspect because like I said it has worlds, the lowest part, neshama, that is us, and then there's godliness. So it's almost as like what we're doing and there's different ways to look at it as as you can look at it as the the black letters that are sitting on the paper there in front of you are like coals, dormant coal. If you blow on them, they become fire. And the blowing on them doesn't require a <gasps> like your barbecue. It requires just the, to pronounce it, b of baruch, baruch. And obviously you have, you have to visualize as if those letters are turning into fire and flying off the page, along with your soul, all the way up to the highest heights of heaven. It's a bizarro imagery, and to do that on every word, it's practice. It's our kung fu, okay? But even if you start with one letter at a time that tells its story, Baruch, with all of the meaning and everything, I must like, believe me, if you would really get into this, you'd be uh, praying all day. You wouldn't get anything else done, but something maybe that's, that's good. So the idea here is, yes, the, the letters are energy. The letters have a life. The letters are waiting for you to blow on them and give them life. And then they, you take them actually up to a higher place and connect them to a higher place in infinity. Basically, I mean, that's, that's the whole idea of speech, correct? Is you're bringing yes. air up and then using your mouth to form the sounds of the letters to bring them out into the world. Is that the same thing that you're describing? Yes, Absolutely. You can call it, cre- I've heard one Kabbalist call it creational science. We use our mouths for blessings all the time. So when you say Baruch or Baruch Hashem, it's a powerful thing. Very powerful. Right. Okay. We're, we're taking the, the lowest part of the human body, the mouth, the teeth, the tongue, the flesh, taking sure. the Ruach, the air, and, and we're articulating a concept that's probably coming from a much higher level. And, and bringing those things There you together. go. I like what you I like the way you're saying it. It's very nice. You know, you could use different terminologies for it. Energy because the, the the we look at the letters as being just basically a a clee, a vessel. And we are like a vehicle to go ahead and take that vessel and connect it to God, to infuse it. We can also infuse the letter with God. So the physical matter, let's say there's energy, you, he Rabbi Ginsburg in the introduction calls it energy, life and light. It's like the energy of a letter has an energy, and then we are the life force of that energy because we say the letter, and that, of course, will infuse it with light. And like I say, we don't necessarily see immediately the effects of it. Oh, but it has an effect. It has an effect. So the idea here is like they have life to them. So they have life. We are the energy, and then there's, of course, connecting it to the light. 
to the light of God. I hope I gave some kind yeah, of insight. Look, it's it's a it's a it's amazing concept because when when you stop and contemplate that everything in the universe, every physical matter, including our bodies, are being brought into existence through Hashem's speech in the letters, and even everything in the spiritual realm and our neshamas are being constantly being created through sounds, then through the sounds is where Hashem is creating all life. So everything you're saying is pretty mind-blowing. Absolutely. Absolutely. And like I said, I think the other, the other takeaway, as you stated, is this topic just shows the gravity and the importance of how we use our speech, which is scary because it's, <laughs> it's so easy to use it. You know, they say, don't open your mouth to the Sutton. Don't open your mouth to the Satan. And that's referring to anytime you're going to say something like negative, like, you know, or you're going to say, you know, it's, don't say something foolish too soon. Like, wow, look at this. We just got on the freeway and there's no traffic. And then all of a sudden there's traffic. It's like, no, no, just keep quiet. Don't say, wow, thank God there's no police around. And then there's police around. It's like, be keep on the, on the flip side. Be careful. Right. Be careful. It was like whenever I've made the mistake in the past of saying like, man, I haven't been sick in so long. <laughs> I always get sick the next day. Oh, there you go. Right? Exactly. <laughs> so like you give yourself an ayin hara, we call it, you give yourself the evil eye. You open up the mouth of the influence of it happening. Your words actually brought it about. Right. Right. Okay. Beautiful. Rabbi, thank you so much for discussing this intriguing, amazing topic with us. Is there anything else you'd like to, to share on it? Just to know that the letters are deep and it's worth investing in trying to even read it, even though you don't understand it. The idea here is to be aware that it's not any other language. It's the king's language. It's the creational science language. And it's something that we have to learn to connect to because they're all red pills. Right. Okay. Beautiful. Rabbi, thank you so much for coming. Pleasure. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider supporting Torch so they can continue to spread Torah wisdom to the world by making a donation at torchweb.org and clicking Donate in the top right corner of the page. And if you would like to get in contact with our host with comments, suggestions for future topics of learning, or questions for him or his guest rabbis, you may email him at president at torchweb.org.